Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Most Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Nathan Mirvold was the first chief technology officer of Microsoft, and he's also worked with Stephen Hawking to uncover the secrets of the universe. But he is also passionate about food science. In his latest three-volume encyclopedia, Modernist Pizza, Mirvold dives deep into crust toppings, why pizza margarita was not named after a queen, and why you should be making more pizza at home. Pizza is funny because it is much more widely eaten than it is made. Yet, it's actually not that hard to make at home. And it turns out even bad pizza made at home is pizza. It's not that bad. (laughs) Also coming up, we learn a Venetian recipe for pasta with radicchio and walnuts. And Adam Gopnik explains how to cook for your family when everyone has a different dietary restriction. But first, it's my interview with journalist Larry Tai about how the father of public relations, Edward Bernays, made bacon and eggs the American breakfast of choice. Larry, welcome to Milk Street. Great to be on with you, Chris. Edward Bernays is one of my absolutely most favorite historical figures. Who was Edward Bernays? He was a man who was so convincing as to what he was doing that he convinced the world, and the New York Times, that he was the father of public relations. And if father means the first, he wasn't. But if father means the most inventive PR man that the world could have ever dreamed up, he was. 
He was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, and he took his uncle's ideas on why people behave the way they do and used them to make people behave the way his clients wanted them to. And to me, he was most of all the father of spin. So let, let's frame this period, World War I into the 20s, this notion of the masses, the crowd, and whether there was going to be chaos. And Bernays felt that there was a way to control people by understanding their, I guess, subconscious desires, right? Right, and he felt that the people who should be pulling the strings and exercising that control were people like him, the shapers of public opinion who could ensure that the masses did things that were good and appropriate and going to steer the economy in a way that his clients wanted it to go, which was all the way up. Let's hear a little bit from Edward Bernays right now. Here he is during an interview with Ball State University in 1986, talking about creating the field of public relations after World War I. When I got back from the war, I recognized that ideas could be as important weapons as anything. And first, I called what we did publicity direction. I would direct the conduct of people so that they could win, through ideas, their public goals. Okay, let's turn to Bacon, one of his great successes. Um, Mid-1920s, the Beechnut Packing Company produced bacon. And I didn't know this, but at the time, Americans had turned to a very light breakfast. Uh, the 19th century, it was heavy a lot of meat, but not so in the 1920s. How did he turn that around? So a normal publicity person would have said, geez, we're going to try to compete with our fellow bacon makers, and we're going to try to steal some of the market from them. Bernays said, no, if Americans aren't eating bacon, none of the bacon makers are going to be profitable. So he redefined what breakfast ought to be about, and he persuaded a famous New York doctor to write his colleagues and asking them not a neutral poll on what people should be eating, but the way he phrased it was he wanted to know whether they supported a hearty or a light breakfast. Now, <laughs> the very word hearty was clearly skewing the poll right. and ensuring what Bernays knew would happen, which was that hearty won big and that newspapers spread the word and that people started following their physician's advice. And the advice was, eat a hearty breakfast. And Bernays said, a hearty breakfast is a bacon and eggs breakfast. So what he succeeded in doing was making the ultimate artery-clogging breakfast forever linked in the American mindset with what a hearty and healthy breakfast was. And that continues in households across the world to this day. If you don't like bacon and you're interested in your health, as 4,000 doctors say that you better eat bacon, you'll do it. Mm -hmm. Bacon and eggs and buttered toast. There's nothing like a good, healthy breakfast to start the day off right. 
And a meal like this should satisfy anyone. I still believe it. <laughs> I, I'm all for bacon yeah, and eggs. Uh, but, but what's so interesting here is a good example. His skills, his ability to convince the quote-unquote masses to buy something or think something is simply – a skill that could be used for good or evil, and he was on both sides of that coin? He was absolutely on both sides, and at times he used it for good, and yet it was also, it had huge potential for harm, and Edward Bernays was told by an Associated Press reporter in the 1930s that his book was on the bookshelf of Joseph Goebbels, of Hitler's PR and propaganda chief. And on the one hand, Bernays, as a Jew, was especially shocked by that and dismayed. And on the other hand, he told enough people about it over the years, and I also think in some sense that he was proud, that he could never really distinguish the good from the bad. So he helped addict a generation of women to smoking cigarettes and Then two generations later, he worked for the American Lung Association to help wean them of the habit that he had created. Hmm. And what Eddie Bernays said was, geez, if I had known the dangers of cigarettes back when I was helping convince women to smoke cigarettes, I would never have done it. And that all would have been very convincing, except he left all of his records to the Library of Congress, and they show that one of the few people in America who truly understood the dangers of cigarettes back in the 1920s and 30s was Eddie Bernays and his buddies at the American Tobacco Company. He started becoming so addicted to his success with these public relations techniques that he could no longer see good and bad and no longer see truth and some of the lies he told. Right. Here he is on David Letterman in 1985 explaining the benefits of being called Dr. Bernays, despite only having honorary degrees. All right, now, uh, doctor, what, uh, tell me again what the doctor is. What are we dealing with well, here? You're the father of uh, public relations. What we're dealing with, really, is the concept that people will believe me more if you call me doctor. Oh, I see. <laughs> so there's a lot of takeaways. He um, imbued products with an emotional resonance. He used quasi-medical research and other research to support the value proposition for a product. And also that if you say it loud enough and long enough, it becomes true. Are all of those things still in play today? And has the ball been advanced down the field beyond what Bernays was doing? I think the techniques are the same that Edward Bernays used a hundred years ago. He worked for the biggest manufacturers of food in America, and he helped sell us on the idea that everything from unhealthy cereal to what we were discussing with bacon and eggs was the way that you could truly get the day off to a healthy start. And what Edward Bernays did was take his uncle Sigmund Freud's ideas on why people behave the way they do and use them to make people behave the way his clients wanted them to. And I think that the that, that is precisely what companies are doing today. A hugely more money is being spent on all of this, and it seems more sophisticated, but the techniques were set in place nearly a century ago, and it's just refinements. 
Larry, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for being here on Milk Street. Chris, thanks for having me on. That was journalist Larry Tai. His book is The Father of Spin, Edward L. Bernays, and the Birth of Public Relations. Now it's time for my co-host Sarah Malt and I to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, and she stars in Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. So, Chris, you know, we always talk about having a cocktail when we're done doing radio. What cocktail are you going to concoct after radio today? Well, I don't usually concoct them because I'm a person of deep habit, Mm -hmm. uh, which means that I basically drink old-fashioned. Okay. But uh, a friend of mine in Paris actually sent me a bottle of – it's a creme de noyau. It's noyau de Poissy. It's a liqueur. This is David Leibowitz, who just came out with a cocktail book, made from the insides of stone fruit kernels, you know, the pits. Oh, wow. So it's slightly almondish. Yeah. I think in the Middle East it's called Maleb. It's M-A-H-L-E-B. Anyway, so the recipe, it's called a jockey club. It's an ounce and a half of dry gin, three-quarter ounce of lemon juice. <laughs> I know this by heart because I've made a few of them. Three-quarter ounce of this uh, liqueur, which is not easy to find. You have to special order it. And again, noyau de Poissy, P-O-I-S-S-Y. A little sugar syrup, if you like, just a tiny bit, and some bitters. Mm. It has a slight almond flavor. The gin is nice, you know, the botanicals and the gin. And the lemon juice makes it almost a cooler. It's very refreshing. So it's the perfect balance of alcohol, herbs, lemon juice, and then a slight undercurrent of almond. And it's just spectacular. That sounds great. You know, it's interesting. Years ago, when I was in France, we were introduced to a chestnut liqueur, and you were supposed to add it to white wine. And I Mm. thought, how odd. But in a similar way, sort of the acid of the white wine worked really nice with the sort of deep chestnut flavor of the liqueur. that sounds good. Oh, so good. Oh, geez. Well, we'll have to finish up our questions here so we can get to that cocktail. We're just going to have to have formal cocktail hour after radio instead of just talking about it, right? I think so. I think so. Okay. Well, let's get back to work. Take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name's Eileen. Hi, Eileen. Where are you calling from? Uh, Outside of Philadelphia. How can we help you today? Every year I make a pumpkin roll, and it always cracks when I roll it. So I Googled and found they suggested rolling it with the parchment paper. So I tried that this year, and it was the worst ever. (laughs) And I'm wondering, it almost felt like it was too wet. I don't know. Like I want to know what the secret is to rolling a pumpkin roll without it cracking. Yeah, well, I would think the parchment did keep it too wet. What I've always done is turned it out onto a very lightly floured or confectioner sugared tea towel or, you know, kitchen towel, and then let it cool off enough so that you can handle it, roll it up with the towel, and then let it cool, and then you can unroll it and proceed. That should work just fine. I also wonder if maybe you're slightly overcooking it if it cracks. I've always done it with the towel, and it still cracks on me, but maybe I am overbaking it. Yeah, that's what I wonder. Chris? I agree. It's amazing. Oh, dear, what happened? (laughs) Dear Diary, I agree with Sarah. <laughs> yeah, the parchment's a terrible idea because it won't breathe, and the tea towel will absorb the moisture. I would say, however, you do want to roll it up while it's 
pretty warm. I mean, you don't want to let it cool, then roll no, over. No, just so, enough so you can handle it is what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, but within a couple of minutes, two mm-hmm. or three minutes coming out of the oven, mm-hmm. you want to roll it up, let it sit. But I think Sarah's right. You should probably underbake it a little bit. There's still cooking going on once it comes out, and that'll finish it up. Yeah, I probably am overbaking it then because yeah. I keep looking and the center seems too loose. So I, you know, give it another minute, another minute. Maybe yeah. that's the problem. Yeah, but, yeah I, I'm I, glad what you, to hear what you said about the parchment because that really frustrated me. It was really yeah. a mess. Oh, dear. That's, we'll put yeah. that in the big dumb advice box, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> I agree. Then, yeah. Can't believe the, everything you read on the it's, internet. Right? It's a very oh, big box yeah. full of stuff in there. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, give that a shot. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thanks for calling. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need a hand in the kitchen, give us a ring anytime. That number is 855-426-9843, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Ruth calling from California. We're in California. I live in Mariposa, which is right outside of Yosemite National Park. Oh, lovely. Gee, that's, yeah, that, I feel terrible. <laughs> I mean, I feel terrible. I don't live there. That sounds great. So how can we help you? Well, I have the wonderful privilege and luxury of being able to have my own pigs living here. I have seven acres and a tiny farm. And every year when butchering time comes, I'm absolutely flummoxed with the butcher instructions, I don't really feel comfortable with the choices that I've made. And I guess I wanted to ask you guys, you guys probably know better than me. And also, do you have any tips on making lard? Oh my God, Mm -hmm. I'm completely flummoxed. Well, the lard, you want leaf lard, and that's the lard around the kidneys. And you get a butcher to save that for you. Uh Then you have to cook that down Usually it's done very slowly over a few hours with some water in the pan, Dutch oven or whatever you're using. Cook it very slowly until it melts. Uh, Strain it off. Put it into small containers of one kind or another, even ice cube trays, whatever you want. Oh, good idea. That leaf lard does not taste like pork. It has a very clean taste. And it's what Uh American pie makers used traditionally for making pies because you get this incredible leafy texture to the finished baked pie dough. So that's the lard you want is the stuff around the kidneys. No, I just wanted to clarify one thing because I'm learning here too. When you say you render the lard by combining it with water and cooking it low in a Dutch oven, is that in the oven or on top of the stove? You could do it either. I do it on top of the stove. The water is there so you don't overcook the lard. You just want to melt it very slowly and then strain it off for any bits. I would use that for cooking because it's a very neutral flavor. Oh, okay. Any tips on butcher cuts, like picnic shoulders versus Boston butts? I'm totally confused. Well, a picnic shoulder is the upper arm of essentially the front leg, the upper part of the front leg, and the Boston butt is the shoulder. Right. So the Boston butt is going to be a better cut because it's got more fat in it. That's the one you'll use for pulled pork. Yeah, that's used for barbecue. A picnic oh. shoulder will be a little leaner because it's got more muscle in it. Fabulous. What is your favorite cut, both of you? It's the Boston butt. You know, I use it all the time. A quick recipe. I mean, if you take three onions, shove it in an Instant Pot or a Dutch oven, saute it with about a third of a cup of smoked paprika and a bunch of other spices, nothing too spicy. Cook it for a few minutes, throw in three to four pounds of cubed Boston butt, you know, pork shoulder, three-quarter cup of water, 
bring it up to temperature, cook it 40 minutes, you're done. Emergency uh, dinner. It's fabulous. Also add at the other end of the spectrum in one of the leanest cuts would be the pork tenderloin. It's the most tender cut, but it still has wonderful flavor. And I cut it into medallions and treat it like little steaks, like little filet mignon. I use that as a quick saute, you know, with like mushrooms, make a sauce of some kind. Cut it into two-inch thick medallions and then smush it, saute it, and make a sauce. It's yummy. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, you can also... Take a tenderloin and cut it into one and a half, two inch pieces, put some a spice rub on it, let it sit a few minutes, and just saute it off in a skillet. And that's, you know, Spanish bar food, pinches moronos, serve it over rice or a salad. It's uh, just a great meal, and it's, you know, a 10-minute recipe. Okay, fabulous. Oh, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much. Well, Thanks thank for calling. You. Yes. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Okay. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, the founder of Modernist Cuisine, Nathan Mirvold, busts pizza's greatest myths. That's right up after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Most Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with the founder of Modernist Cuisine, Nathan Mirvold. His latest book is Modernist Pizza. The three-volume, 1,700-page guide answers every question you could ever have about pizza. Nathan, welcome back to Milk Street. Well, great to be here. I, I can't say I, I read your book. Because, you know, I, I didn't have six months <laughs> in a cabin on top of a mountain. But I did go through the book, and I have to say, it, it is amazing. The amount of work that went into it was fascinating. And going through all the history and talking about what's not true and what is true. But let's start with a question you ask at the beginning of the book, which is, what is pizza? So, you know, in Lebanese, you know, Middle Eastern cooking, there are a lot of flatbreads yep. that might have some zatar on it or something simple. So any topping on a flatbread, is that pizza? No, not by the definition that we picked. Those other flatbreads may be wonderful, but we chose to pick a particular lineage. So this is very much like saying, 
there's probably a lot of wonderful people in the world named Kimball. But only a small set of those are actually relatives of you, Chris. Right. And that was the idea we had with pizza, which is out of all of the world's flatbreads, one particular flatbread rose up and conquered the earth. (laughs) And that flatbread originated in Naples in the 19th century. Uh, It mutated into many other forms as it left Naples and, and conquered the world. And so for us, pizza is all of the things related to that. Um, okay, so let's talk about the book. How big is the book? What does it weigh? How many pages <laughs> is it? And, and and talk about your lab. I don't know if it's the same place I visited. You yep, were kind enough to, to make me lunch years ago. But it, it was stunning. So describe the book and the lab. Well, the book is... Uh, three hardcover volumes, and then one spiral-bound kitchen manual. It comes in a stainless steel case, which, in honor of Italy and famous exports of Italy like Ferraris, (laughs) um, we painted it red. (laughs) So the, the goal of the book is to explain everything we know about pizza today. That includes history, that includes the science of pizza, it, and it includes more than a thousand recipes, including recipes of many, many different styles of pizza. So you have Detroit pizza, you have Chicago deep dish pizza and Chicago thin pizza and St. Louis style pizza. And depending on how you count it, up to a dozen uh, of these variations. You could even say Tokyo marinara is almost getting to be its own style of a pizza. And tell us about your lab. I mean, you have a lot of equipment there, uh, 3D yeah. printers, this and that, the other thing. Which are the things you actually use on a regular basis to do a book like pizza? Well, we have a, a large uh, kitchen that I don't think there's any restaurant in the world that would be better equipped for cooking equipment. We also have a lot of scientific equipment, which you'd find in a, in a really well-done food lab. Uh, And we have a machine shop. So the goal of what we have at the lab is to have all of the equipment, tools, and people necessary for us to do thousands of experiments. You know, when people say, oh, do X because that makes it better, I always want to test it. Because a distressing number of times in the world of cooking, X doesn't make it better. Or it does, but it's not really worth it. So in your testing, uh, because you are a scientist at heart, um, were there any fundamental myths about pizza that were disproven in your research? So you have people who say, oh, you can't make pizza without having the water of Naples or of New York City. Um, That's wrong. (laughs) Uh, We we tested uh, that extensively. Uh, you have uh, we did that in part by bringing water back and then doing side by side tests in our kitchen with the water of the supposed magical place. Um, there's a lot of people that will use excessive fermentation times. Oh, and another great thing was like what kind of oven? Oh, that a coal burning oven is so much better than a gas fired oven. Well, it turns out. When people say coal burning ovens, 
the place that really perfected this was in New Haven. And it wasn't coal. It was a product called Coke, hmm. which was used for the metalworking right. industry. Right. And Coke is a perfectly reasonable fuel because it doesn't emit this stinking fumes. No, I've uh, cooked on a coal stove. It does smell. Yeah. It smells horrible. Right. But the people are, who are doing this on, on a coal stove because they think it's traditional don't actually know that their ancestor who did it never used coal. They used Coke, which is totally <laughs> different and doesn't smell. So um, how did pizza get to America? I mean, one of the things I love about your book is, is you disabuse of, of these these silly historical stories. So what was the real deal? How did it really get here? Well, you had lots of residents of Naples wind up in the United States. And they started making food for themselves the way they knew how, and they included pizza. And it got popular. Pizza was popular in New York and in a variety of cities by 1900. Uh, in fact, we found there was pizza on the West Coast, you know, just a few years after there being pizza on the East Coast. Um, pizza margarita, I've been, you know, there, there's certain stories I've been telling all my life. Yeah, uh, they're wrong. I, and they're all wrong. So what, <laughs> what's the real story here? Well, the we don't know how pizza margarita actually originated. There was a charismatic story that this one um, pizzolo created it for uh, Queen Margarita, who was the first queen of, um, of Italy. The problem is, I found a play written in Naples about 20 years before Margarita <laughs> was queen. And in the play, there is a pizzolo and a customer, and the customer orders a pizza with mozzarella, tomato, and basil, which is the classic margarita. So it clearly was something that existed in the town for a long time. And it's one of the problems with trying to figure out the history of pizza is that essentially everyone you ask has a reason to lie. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good historical quote. Um, flour, I think... In general, you're in favor of high-protein flour, like in the 14% range. But a lot of people over the years you know, have talked about, well, gee, in Italy, sometimes they use a very low-gluten flour. Or they talk about double-zero flour, which is very finely milled versus coarser mills. To what extent does flour make a huge difference here? Um, part of it depends on the style of pizza that you're going for. You know, I, I think you can make a pizza crust out of any flour you'd make bread out of. And bread flours generally are higher protein flours than, uh, than not, and that really aids in creating the structure for the bread. If the protein amount is too high and or if you use the wrong technique, like you try to uh, do it without letting it sit overnight, what you'll discover is that the dough is too strong. And that means as you try to spread the dough out to make it nice thin patty it stretches right back up so that's the problem with having one that is too high in gluten but with the right technique uh, you can do well now if you're making a 
Chicago deep dish pizza. The recipe for that was originally developed by African-American women. Hmm. It's sort of a not well enough told story that it was black women chefs that developed the recipes for deep dish pizza originally. And their original recipes, which are made today in many of the uh, pizzerias, they're almost like a pie dough that you put yeast into. And as a result, you could probably make those with a a very soft flour, low uh, protein flour. The same thing is true for the cracker-like pizzas. If you really are trying to make a cracker-like crust, it's actually much easier on you to go and use a low uh, protein flour. What's the difference between, in your mind, between New York-style pizza and Neapolitan pizza? So New York-style pizza has got a whole bunch of differences. One is it's usually bigger. You know, the standard pizza in the New York world is an 18-inch pizza. You know, the, the difference from a dough perspective is we would put definitely put some oil in our New York dough, and we would not cook it anywhere near as hot. Right. A traditional Neapolitan is cooked in a very hot oven. I timed it. It was when I was there it was seventy seconds, I think. Yeah, it, it was it's, fast. It's super fast. Then there's this whole thing about whether you need a wood burning oven or not. I have come to regard wood burning ovens very much like I regard unicycles. <laughs> you, you know, if you go to a Cirque du Soleil show. They'll probably have one of the elements with like people on unicycles doing amazing stuff. And if you're one of those Cirque du Soleil people, hey, a unicycle is awesome. But you very few people commute to work on a unicycle. <laughs> it's just, it's not that efficient. It's more of a stunt. But if you master a wood-burning oven, okay, you master a wood-burning oven. You can't make a better pizza than you can in a gas oven. Or for that matter, an electric oven. Boy, you're going to catch some flack for that one, I think. Uh, well, I'm sure I am. This, this is the Nathan Mirvol we all know and love. <laughs> I just want to say that. So is there, I know you have lots of recipes in your book, is there a particular recipe you'd want to give people now that would be like the basic at-home pizza recipe? Um, yeah, I think the first thing is people get afraid of of bread or pizza because it involves this fermentation step and they're afraid it won't come out. But there are few things cheaper than flour. So I totally encourage people to experiment. It, pizza is funny because it is much more widely eaten than it is made. Yet it's actually not that hard to make at home. If you say, okay, you want to make the absolute perfect Neapolitan pizza as good as a professional in Naples, okay, that will require some effort, just like it required that guy some effort. But uh, you can make pizza at home. There's nothing to be afraid of. And it turns out even bad pizza made at home is pizza. It's not that bad. (laughs) Nathan, uh... A pleasure, an education. It was entertaining. Uh, (laughs) I just love the book. Thank you. Well, thank you. That was the founder of Modernist Cuisine, Nathan Mirvold. His latest book is Modernist Pizza. Everyone loves pizza to the point that anything goes. In Germany, they use canned tuna. In Sweden, it's banana curry. 
In Russia, they top pizza with tuna, mackerel, and salmon. In Australia, it's kangaroo. And in Japan, you can order pizza with squid. But in Naples, where pizza originated, they stick to tradition, marinara and margarita. No squid, no curry, no kangaroo. So if you travel to Sweden, skip the pizza and order the national dish, meatballs. Or as they say, when in Rome. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, pasta with radicchio, walnut, and black pepper. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You know, you just got back from Venice a few months ago. I was there two or three years ago, and we had very different experiences. I was (laughs) eating blue-collar food (laughs) in places that had no menus, and you were getting slightly fancier food, but not much fancier. You found, among other things, a bunch of pasta dishes, which I was not familiar with, which is one of the great things about Italy, right? There's just an infinite number of things you've never had before. Absolutely. I mean, every time you turn a corner, you're encountering yet another pasta dish that you've never heard of and yet is simple and delicious and uses you know, kind of the best of whatever is fresh and local. You can never run out of pasta in Italy. This one uses walnuts and radicchio and pepper, which is an interesting combination. Right. So I was working with a home cook, Francesco Bernardi. He's actually a librarian who is obsessed with cookbooks. He's taught himself how to cook. And he loves researching kind of the local ingredients and the local pastas. And after taking me on a cruise on his boat through the canals, we did some shopping at the market. And we go back to his apartment and made just this wonderful, blissfully simple pasta that combines all these kind of tastes and textures, these kind of high and low, crunchy and tender. And it was all based around radicchio, which was wonderfully so fresh, so crisp, so ever so slightly sweet and bitter at the same time. And it really was a terrific and simple pasta. Is this a dish that requires cooking other than the pasta? Are you cooking the radicchio and walnuts or is this all raw? You toast the walnuts just to bring out kind of their savory meatiness. And you're very, very briefly sautéing the radicchio in a little bit of olive oil, of course. And that olive oil, you're just going to barely season with a little bit of garlic. That You know, you, like we've learned so many times in Italy, you throw the whole garlic clove in the olive oil. You let it flavor the oil and you throw the garlic away because you don't need it anymore. And you're just going to combine those ingredients When the radicchio is just barely tender, you're going to throw in some pasta. You're going to throw in those walnuts, the parsley, black pepper, of course, more olive oil. This is Italy. And just some wonderful salty cheese, some Parmigiano. And it comes together. The whole thing is on the table in about 20 minutes. And I just love the contrast of the tender pasta, the crunchy walnut, the sweet, bitter radicchio, the fresh, herby parsley. Just the whole thing came together so wonderful. And, of course, the parmigiano melts and brings everything together so perfectly. And that's what I love about great Italian cooking, right? It has a variety of textures, Mm -hmm. you know, walnuts and radicchio, pasta, and also bitterness, right? Spiciness sort of funkiness in the Parmesan. It's simple, but it's not simple. That's what makes it so great is, I mean, we're talking, you know, what, 10 ingredients here total? And if you include the olive oil and the salt and the pepper, 
but nothing is simple about it, even though it is such a simple recipe, because you have all these contrasting tastes and textures, these highs and lows, and so that every bite is interesting and delicious, of course, but interesting. And that's something I think we forget about a lot of times, that food should be interesting. It should intrigue you as you're eating it. And this is certainly one of those dishes. And you got to go to Venice. I got to go to Venice. No (laughs) harm there. Jam, thank you. Pasta with radicchio, walnut, and black pepper, some parmesan and parsley. A simple dish. It's even better than what I have. (laughs) Thank you, Jam. Thank you. You can get this recipe for pasta with radicchio, walnut, and black pepper at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik tells us why we no longer define ourselves by what we eat, but rather with what we don't. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Mike from Columbia, South Carolina. Hi, Mike. How can we help you today? Well, I'm excited to talk to y'all. I went to make that Jose Andreas, the garlic and the bread soup from Spain with the paprika. And, you know, we don't keep a lot of bread in the house. And I notice a lot of the recipes that call for bread and soups will say, oh, you take your day old, your old bread, and you tear that up and you use it in your soup. And I often will think of making something like this at the last minute. And I wanted to know, is there any reason that I can't just use fresh bread, some kind of rustic bread? Is there something structurally putting that into the soup that a fresh bread wouldn't work as opposed to using something and waiting a few days after buying a loaf? Well, you know, what's really interesting is the thing that people don't understand is actually stale bread absorbs more liquid than toasted bread. So it becomes Mm -hmm. mush. You could Mm -hmm. certainly use fresh bread. It will mush up. If you want a little Mm -hmm. bit of structural integrity, I would go ahead and toast the bread, and it will still absorb some of the liquid, but you'll have something, I think, more interesting. Like you, I like artisanal bread. I either make it or I buy it, and I keep it in the freezer sliced, well-wrapped, well-wrapped. And then I just take out what I need every single time. I mean, as a matter of fact, one of my favorite things to serve with soup is what I refer to as faux garlic bread. I toast the bread, and then when it comes right out of the toaster, I brush it with olive oil, I rub it with a cut clove of garlic, and I sprinkle it with sea salt. Nice. Now, I'm sure Chris has something to say about this. I've actually made this recipe with Jose in his house a few years ago, and he used stale bread. That's fine. It didn't turn soggy, really. I think the bread actually kept its shape pretty well. I mean, I would say the more important thing is what kind of bread. If you're making this garlic soup with the smoked paprika, the pimenton, you want a dense country loaf, that kind of bread. Okay. But I would say you could certainly slice and leave it overnight, or you could cube it and put it in a 350 oven for 20 minutes to dry it out. You do want to dry it out because it will keep its structure better, I think, in the soup or the stuffing. 350, 20 minutes, cube bread will solve the problem. Perfect. That's, I think so, type of bread over age, and yeah. we can modify it to make it stale as yeah. needed. Well, that's great. Yeah. That garlic soup, it's got four ingredients and is one of my favorite soups in the world. Well, thank you. Yeah. You've helped change the way I cook, which is sort of <laughs> like the byline. And, and we really love the show and all that you do. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. 
This is Mill Street Radio. If your cooking is in a rut, give us a call. Our number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Donna from Foley, Alabama. How are you? I'm great, thank you. How about you? I love your show. Oh, thank you. How can we help you? Well, just a question about chicken broth. I always save carcasses in a Ziploc in the freezer, and then I make broth with it. And I've noticed, you know, after you cook it for an hour and a half or so, obviously the meat has no flavor whatsoever. And I don't know what the process is by which the flavor is getting into the water and I don't know if I should be cooking it, like, long, like six hours, or if I should do an hour is sufficient. And I also was wondering if it's better if I chop all the bones up to get more bone in there. I have no idea. Well, let's go back into history. I mean, the reason people made stock like this is because they never threw anything out, so they'd have a carcass or they'd have leftover cooking water, <laughs> you know, bits of vegetables, and so they just throw everything into the a pot on the back of the stove on the back burner, right? And they let it go all day right. and they keep adding things over the course of the day. So it was a very, when someone was in the kitchen all day, that's what they did. Yes, the flavor will leach out of the meat and the bone. You should chop it into like two inch pieces is a good idea. As Sarah will probably about to say to you, they often roast the bones first to get some browning and Maillard reaction, which adds flavor. And you should probably let it sit at least for a couple hours in lots of cold water and reduce over time. You can add lots of other ingredients like parsley or quartered onions, other things. If you want a really quick way to do it, chicken wings are the best. That's what we use. Take a bunch of chicken wings and put them in water to cover. You can do this in an Instant Pot in about 30 minutes. And there's so much collagen in those wings, which adds great body to the stock and flavor. So if you have a carcass, cut it up, simmer it for two to three hours, right, Sarah, until you have flavor. And I would cook it, you know— this is another thing that Chris makes fun of me about. I would, you know, at a bare simmer to make sure that you don't cloud it up because you want it to be clear. You know, I'd cook it for two and a half hours, you know, and after you strain it, if it doesn't taste strong enough, just boil it down till it tastes like something. Or go out and buy a jar of better than bouillon. Uh, <laughs> they make chicken, beef, and vegetable in a little glass jar. It's a paste. You use one teaspoon per cup and one tablespoon per quart. It's actually quite good. It's oh. not as good as this. Yeah. Well, I think that the, the, the nice thing here is that she's using up leftovers, getting a second life out of them. I do love to use up those leftovers. Yeah. And I think, Sarah, that I'm hearing you say that if I don't want it to be cloudy, it helps not to boil. Correct. Right. Particularly because you've oh, got all those good. little meat bits in there. Well, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. Sure. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Bonnie Bomberger from Madison Lake, Minnesota. My tip involves breaking eggs for cakes, etc. I just lay out a thin tea towel on my counter and then gently tap the egg on that. Cracks beautifully every time and any egg that leaks out is absorbed by the towel. Thank you. Bye. By the way, if you'd like to share your own cooking tip or some advice on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips.
Next up, let's find out what Adam Gopnik is thinking about this week. Adam, how are you? I am very well, Christopher. How are you today? Pretty good. I have just come out from under one of the strangest gastronomic, culinary, cooking experiences of my life because I had both of our kids, their partners, and their dogs, and everyone to feed all the time. And here's what makes it complex. One is a vegetarian. Oh, here we go. The other is totally gluten allergic. One is a vegan. Next one is a pescatarian. And this is where it gets really complicated and baroque. The gluten allergic one actually loves red meat and strong tastes of all kinds. So I had to take this into account. One dog had significant stomach issues and had to live on boiled chicken and rice. (laughs) And every day I would sort of make the rounds trying to figure out what am I going to cook tonight that will satisfy this astounding roster of allergies, aversions, and preferences. I think oatmeal and almond milk. (laughs) That probably might have done it. But first of all, I got interested, as you know, I tend to do, in what we might call the larger question. When did this become so prevalent, right? 20 years ago, the waiter did not say to us, is there anyone in your party with allergies? And now it's absolutely mandatory that they say it. I was actually doing some reading, and according to one report, one study found that about 10% of adults and children diagnosed themselves as having a food allergy of some kind, while medical testing shows that about 2.5% actually do. Now, I don't mean to be mean-spirited about this, because you have to respect everybody's aversions and allergies because they testify to them. But it does seem to me that this is a construction that we've created for ourselves where everybody has a very, very strong kind of personal Maginot line of what they can eat or not. And rather than thinking of that as the culinary Maginot line, I realized that we have crossed what I think of as the Brillat-Savarin line. You remember Brillat-Savarin, maybe the greatest food writer and food philosopher, for that matter, who's ever lived, right? He was the man who wrote The Physiology of Taste, and he was the one who said so famously, we are what we eat. Show me what you eat, and I will show you who you are. Now what we say to each other is, show me what you won't eat, and I will show you who you are. We define ourselves by our distastes. The end of dining at the table is to find something that is neutral and acceptable to everyone. So I was struggling with this day after day. What dinner would be acceptable for the entire table? Chris, you are a fellow cook. I turn it over to you. Given that range of demands, what dinner would be acceptable for the entire table? I think you have to go to the Middle East, which is mostly mm-hmm. vegetarian. Right. And and so it's vegetables and grains and, and fairly bold flavors. And you're not eating meat and you're not eating much wheat. You know, I, I think that's where I would go. Uh, absolutely. Bahadura, lentils, rice, and caramelized onions. Lentils, rice, couscous, those are, right. all, those are all good things. I did have, though, I had a vegan and a vegetarian. And as you know, vegans and vegetarians are sort of like, um, you know, Lutherans and uh, Unitarians. <laughs> we think of them generically as Protestants, but they don't think of themselves as belonging to the same faith at all. Um, I went to Greece a great deal. So I would make roasted fish with a salsa verde, sautéed spinach over baked potatoes, asparagus charred in a cast iron pan. And I learned how to do a clafoutis, which is one of the simplest and most delicious of desserts with rice flour and almond flour instead of wheat flour. 
And then there was also yellow rice and couscous, which the dogs loved too. So on that basis, exactly, of going to the Mediterranean, I managed somehow for five consecutive weeks to please my family. Five weeks? Five weeks. We had everybody here for five weeks, including the dogs. One of the dogs, an absolutely adorable puppy named Ruby, managed to break every glass table in the house. I, I think you deserve some sort of national <laughs> honor for the, for this five weeks. I, I do have a theory, though, which is I think a lot of this has to do with a health movement of which I was part a long time ago, which is self-diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I think self-diagnosis is a way of people taking control of what they think is wrong with them so they feel they're in control of their bodies. And that's why people – my mother used to say – I, I can't tolerate lemon juice, you know, and I go, why? Well, it, it's, it messes up my stomach, and it made her feel good that she diagnosed herself and took an action to make herself better, and I think that's really a powerful thing in this culture right now. I, I think so, too. It's a way of taking command over some small right. part of our lives. It's also a way of explaining all of the little bumps and bruises mm-hmm. of well-being that we all right. deal with, but it is astounding to me that we have broken through the Brillat-Severin line. We really are all defined by what we won't eat. So what does it say about people who eat everything? It says that those of us who remain omnivores are archaeological creatures. We're the dinosaurs (laughs) and and the relics. You know, if you think about it at all, Back 20, 30 years ago, that was the cutting edge of eating, right? Right. I'll eat anything. That's a good point. Nose to tail. Nose to tail. My friend Fergus Henderson in London, um, the late lamented Anthony Bourdain, their whole ethic was eat everything and eat anything. And that's totally stood in its head now. Now the whole ethic is eat as little as you can, as suspiciously as you possibly are able to. Once again, the future is leaving us behind. (laughs) Adam, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Take care. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, visit us at 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, take a free online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, Vegetables. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimmel's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tureski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. 
This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul.